We need to get together and let our voices be heard. This is Buffalo What's Next. I'm Jay Moran. I'm Bridget Jaipal Valenza. I'm Dave Debo. And I'm Thomas O'Neill White. After May 14th, how can we afford not to talk about race? About education, about segregation, about humanity. Since the dawn of this nation, racial violence has existed. The way we have designed our society has a big hand in what occurred in that Topps market. The suburban area everywhere, we must work and teach our children. We need to make sure that we put more funding in our programs that help prevent gun violence and more money into art. We're going to have some real healing. We've got to have space to tell some uncomfortable truths. This is Dave Debo. Coming up on the program today, we might be broadening our scope just a little bit. But I think, and and if you listen all the time, you probably know this, there is a common theme here. We spotlight the needs of people who have needs, the lack of resources in some communities, and that also occurs in the disability community. If you qualify for disability, that means you've had extensive medical history. So cost of care is huge. Um, especially as you get older um, through the stages of your life, medications are huge, right? Um, what if you have to have um, some specific therapies? Uh, maybe that's, you know, it, it's countless of things that you need based on your illness that, that it puts you in a position you are now. And, you know, the income is not that great. It's, it's there to serve as a bare means of making ends meet. That's Garrett Bush. He's also a sports talk host in Cleveland, so Damar Hamlin will come up in his conversation with Emily Watkins toward the end of this program. But first, here's Jay Moran. We're at the Broadway Market today, and we're talking with Greg Brown. Greg, uh, among everything that he has done in his time, he's currently a sports columnist with the Challenger. Before that, a former assistant U.S. attorney, lifelong Buffalo resident. We've got a lot of other things that we could talk about in a lot of ways, but Greg, Thanks for joining us on Bubble What's Next. Oh, my pleasure. Uh, it is a pleasure to talk to you because one thing I found out about you is you most certainly have a great t- attention to detail and being uh, a, a lifelong Buffalo resident, resident of the east side of Buffalo, a Bennett High School graduate, as a matter of fact. We the Tigers. You go Tigers, and of course, just won the state football championship. But when you were there, you were a teammate of Bob Lanier. The NBA, the Basketball Hall of Famer, the probably, I would say, the greatest athlete to come out of Buffalo. That would be my opinion. I suppose we could start a whole debate on that. I would share that opinion. Yeah, what was it like, uh, like during those times with Bob Lanier? I've been, I, you know, I'm star-crossed, so tell me well, about it. You know, that, that was a, a, a great, great time in my young life uh, just to be on the Bennett High School basketball team. Let me make it perfectly clear that uh, I had nothing to do with... Uh, those great, great bit of high teams. I mean, I at best uh, carried Bob's duffel bag. But I was on the team, I was there. So it's something that uh, over the years uh, gives me uh, a lot of pride and joy. What was it like? Uh, Back in those days, uh, Bennett High School, our basketball team at least, we felt like we were the UCLA of high school basketball. Certainly around here we were. And uh, the you're a sports fan, so you'll know that uh, in those days, uh, John Wooden and uh, his legendary UCLA basketball teams with uh, Lou Alcindor, a.k.a. Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, and all those other great players were, you know, always winning uh, national titles. And, you know, we uh, at Bennett for those last two years uh, of Bob's uh, tenure, 
his junior and uh, senior year, which were my sophomore and junior year. Uh, you know, Bennett was, uh, we were the standard uh, for high school basketball around the city. And uh, so it was great to be a part of that. Uh, among Bob Lanier's nicknames over his career, Moses was one of his nicknames. In the Is that so? Moses. Okay. What kind of person was Bob Lanier? What, uh, what uh, stuck on? Obviously, you knew him when he was just a teenager. We all changed from our teen years, don't we, Greg, to uh, where we are as adults. But what was Bob like? Uh, interesting. Uh, Bob was a smart guy, uh, you know, as a student. He was a good student. Uh, Bob, I would say, if I can make an assessment looking back that far, uh, I'd say Bob was probably a little bit on the immature side. Uh, he was uh, a playful guy, uh, could be a little silly, but he was also Bob Lanier. He had gifts that uh, only God can give. Uh, one of the pivotal moments, I think, in Bob's high school career, in his life, really, was when he was cut from the basketball team out his sophomore year at Bennett. Uh, he had, uh, you know, come to uh, Bennett as a, uh, I guess, a sophomore athlete uh, out of Fillmore uh, Junior High. And uh, a lot of other great athletes came out of that junior high school group in Fillmore. They included my brother, a guy named Joe Brains, who became the starting point guard on those teams. My brother, who is finally got good. Now, bless you Thank you. Pretty good. Thank you. Pretty sick. Y'all be seeing since stay cool. All right, let me try. Look like a hard desk. No, man, I'm not. I'm blood. Yeah, all right, plus you too, man. Crypto, too. We gotta look for a question. All right. I love you all. Thank you. A lot. It's safe. Thank you, sir. That's what I was saying about doing it at the Broadway market. Yeah. That was what? Absolutely. There. Yeah, I, I think when, though, Bob got cut uh, from the Bennett High School team, it impacted him enormously. And in probably in many respects, hindsight may have been a good thing because he, and everyone knows this story well, everyone who follows Bob knows this story, is that uh, after being cut from the Bennett team, he redoubled his work at the Master Boys Club, where we all sort of were rooted. And uh, there was a gentleman at the Master Boys Club, a uh, great teacher, leader, uh, Mr. Laurie Alexander. He worked with Bob over that uh, winter basketball season uh, playing him or getting him into tournaments and just working with him. And one of the, uh, I think, end products of that, besides Bob just improving his game, was the fact that uh, he, you know, he, he got some maturity about him. So when he came back to, uh, you know, that, that season with a new coach at Bennett, he was Bob Lanier. You know, he, he, was, he was almost, well, he wasn't the finished product, but he was big Bob. And, uh, you know, he was uh, probably not Moses for the Bennett team. I think that, you know, Bob was going to be a superstar at whatever high school he attended. Freshly, he was in our neighborhood and he attended Bennett. But uh, Bennett all was already and always was noted with uh, great talent. And, uh, you know, it would have been tougher without Bob and maybe impossible. But, you know, there were enough guys who uh, could have carried on, I think. Uh, Switching a little bit away from sports, but it's interesting how you describe that Bennett that was basically a neighborhood school, right? And yeah, people that neighborhood school. There was a lot of people's neighborhood school. And the neighborhood school was like sort of a gerrymandered map, you know, again, a little of this and a little of that. And that's what Bennett had, a right. little of this and a little of that. And then, of course, you can't necessarily reflect 
as a student, but in the 70s, of course, magnet schools, segregation, things changed. Yeah, they did. Any uh, thoughts about that, whether that has been for the better or for the worst? I think it's been a mixed bag. You know, when, I, when you talk about, you know, the magnet school movement uh, and what sort of uh, underlay that uh, magnet school movement, certainly in the city of Buffalo, was uh, an effort to stem so much of the white flight that uh, was affecting Buffalo uh, back in that late 70s, early 80s period when these magnet school programs were, uh, were envisioned and then created. The City Honors Program came out of the Bennett High School Honors Program. They took the Bennett High School Honors Program, lock, stock, and barrel, all of the faculty, all of the curriculum sort of development that they had had from running an honors program for many, many years at Bennett, which is one of the things that made Bennett one of the premier high schools in the area. Uh, they took that program, as I say, lock, stock, and barrel, put it into uh, a new facility in Faldy City Honors. And, you know, by and large, I think City Honors has been uh, a very uh, worthwhile and worthy uh, public school institution. But when you took it out of bid at high school, I think you took a lot of the heart and character out of the bid. And so while you, uh, you paid Peter, you robbed a call. And I don't know that Bennett ever really, as an institution, recovered from both the demographic changes and then the loss of uh, that, I think, essential component of its program. It's the thing that made Venice special and different in the same way that City Honors is special and different. So, uh, you know, having City Honors, my daughter attended City Honors, uh, you know, I, uh, you know, I feel in some ways, uh, you know, a connection to it. I was in the Honors program uh, at least one of my years at Bennett. I got out of it, you know, because I didn't want to work that hard <laughs> and I wanted to play sports. Right. And, you know, you know, being in the honors program was uh, something that would have required more time than I wanted to devote the academic side of it. But, you know, it, Bennett was such a good school. You know, you could get a good education at Bennett regardless of what so-called track you read. You know, I was in a college entrance track and, you know, there was a general track, but Anybody who's at Bennett, you know, you were pretty assured of getting, you know, a competent education, certainly in uh, terms of, you know, what we see in debt and uh, public education. So Bennett was a great place. And uh, in terms of college track, I uh, attended uh, as undergrad Brown University. Later in life, you attended uh, the University of Buffalo Law School as well. So right. I think uh, I think they prepared you well. Yeah. And if you weren't that willing to work that hard, uh, so as you, what do you call not working on earth? But I want to stay on the track of looking back a little bit. Jefferson Avenue, unfortunately, in 2022 became a focus not only of West New York, but of, uh, of the nation for, for a while. And since we've started this show, Buffalo What's Next, we've talked a lot about Jefferson Avenue. And some people have reflected about Jefferson, what Jeffer Jefferson was like at a certain time in history as compared to now. How about from your perspective? What, how do you... See no. that change. Well, well, when I was coming of age, you know, Jefferson Avenue was the, uh, you know, main avenue, the main drag of the black community. Uh, it had uh, stores and shops and restaurants and the like. Uh, you know, the uh, famous Gigi's restaurant. Uh, you know, the Scotty's Steakhouse. 
the, uh, you know, Mr. C's, uh, you know, clothing store. Uh, Jefferson Avenue was, was the heart of the black community. It was uh, kind of the beady heart of the community. And as the, I don't want to say the fortunes of the city rose, the, the fortunes on Jefferson Avenue declined, but in a way, it seemed to me that there was that kind of relationship. You know, the days of the uh, GGs and the pie grill and, you know, all these places, uh, you know, being gathering spots, uh, you know, in the community began to change, began to shift. And much of it, you know, followed the demographic changes that we were referring at Muffle. And uh, so, you know, right now, you know, it's a, it's a place in need of development. If there's any good news to come out of the Topps Market uh, massacre, it would be that uh, it becomes uh, a catalyst to boost Jefferson Avenue economic growth. Uh, and I hope that can happen. Um, the black community of Buffalo, again, maybe reflecting a time from your youth, your young adult age, to where it is now. Any thoughts about how it's changed, what has changed? I don't know. Sometimes it's been a, I think, a story of uh, two steps forward, one step backwards, or two steps backwards and one step forward. Um, in many ways, you know, one can argue that, uh, you know, we uh, have not shared in Buffalo or the region's general revival. Uh, that, you know, we may be being left behind by that. Not everybody, but, you know, large enough segments of the population that uh, they become uh, politically and demographically and economically significant. Um, and that is, you know, public education has not served well the, uh, the children uh, of Buffalo uh, within the public schools. And I think that the longer you have ineffectual public education, the more difficult and the more intractable uh, social and political problems become because, you know, you're not producing the kind of uh, citizens and leaders to really, uh, you know, propel the community for. And that's what I'm feeling, you know, and not that there are not young people and leaders and such, but uh, I, I, I don't see a big difference uh, between now and uh, 1967. And frankly, I think in many respects, 1967 was uh, maybe politically, socially, economically, you know, uh, a, a better period of time for black buffalo. I mean, I mean, that's we'd open to debate, of course, just in kingdom. But, uh, you know, like I say, it's two step well and one step backwards. When it comes to opinions, though, and we like to give people opportunity on this program, do just that. And we can focus on the negative force and the problems and the issues. I think you've outlined some of them very well. At the same time, there you, you live in the university district, if I'm not mistaken now, and you grew up in the city of Buffalo. So there's something special about that community for you, I would think. What, outline that from it. Talk to me about that. 
What makes it special? Well, you know, I, there's a saying, you know, it's not an original, but uh, they used to say, if you can make it in Buffalo, you can make it here. And I uh, have always subscribed to that. Uh, I've lived in a few other places, uh, you know, West Coast, East Coast, uh, you know, Rochester. Um, and one of the things that uh, I feel I have taken from my Buffalo growing up experience uh, is that uh, resilience and that, you know, feeling like, you know, you can rise to any occasion. You know, because you grew up, uh, you know, in, in, in Buffalo. You know, Buffalo makes you do some things. You know, when winter comes, your butt better be ready. When, uh, you know, football season comes, you better be ready for a heartbreak as well as, you know, <laughs> uh, you know, whatever's that come with it. But, you know, bu Buffalo, I think, you know, hardens one. I think it makes one uh, able to cope with just about any situation one will find anywhere else and uh when you you know when you've grown up in buffalo and played your buffalo dues i think you're ready i think you're ready for challenges we're talking with uh, greg brown buffalo what's next uh, greg former assistant u.s attorney also current assistant you i do did they say you said but what well, he says u.s attorney i know all about not stepping on toes in certain places we all have those type of things but um, Greg also currently sports columnist with the uh, Challenger. Greg, um, you did bring up being ready for winter in Buffalo. We just went through an amazing yeah. blizzard uh, here in Buffalo. From your perspective, not necessarily how you necessarily fared, but as you saw your neighborhood. Uh, oh, what, what can you what can you tell us uh, about how it went and maybe some of your feelings about it? You, you know, when the blizzard was coming, you know, we had, uh, you know, Apple warning uh, of its coming. I was kind of regarding it as an adventure, you know, something to, you know, have some fun with, to hulker down. Me, I had plenty of food in my fridge, uh, you know, plenty to, you know, eat and drink. And so, you know, I, I wasn't worried about any kind of privation, and I knew I was going to be old when the blizzard came. So my only worry was that... Uh, you know, the uh, fire wouldn't go out, which it did for everybody across the street from me, but not on my side of the street. It was as random as that. But uh, as the blizzard raged for those 48-plus hours, with snow was coming down sideways the entire time, with so much wind, that, you know, I uh, went from worrying that, you know, I could withstand the blizzard, but that by... By window clip, by second floor window, that is, you know, really got ramshackled, was going to stand up to this blizzard. Book did, you know, thank the Lord. But uh, that was this past one, the blizzard of 22, was even worse than the blizzard of 77, in my eyes, you know, because what it had that the blizzard didn't have was the hurricane force winds and the bomb cyclone. You know, I'd never heard of this bomb right, cyclone right. business, but, you know, Buffalo had the Bob Cyclone, which is where there's a temperature inversion of 40 degrees or something like that within a very short period of time, hours. And we had that. So, you know, the temperature dropped, I guess, 40-some degrees. And it went from, a, you know, a rain to a freezing rain to, you know, just the blizzard. And uh, so the aftermath of it is when 
you know, what I was regarding at first as kind of a fun adventure just became uh, an enduring tragedy, a nightmare. Right. I knew someone who had been a very dear friend of our family, you know, by mom's age. She would have been probably about 95 years old, who passed away. Started Ross Powell. Lost power in her hold, 95 years old, couldn't withstand the exposure, and she was found here after the blizzard. So, you know, the, the, there are all of those stories of tragedy and, and, and to, you know, open, you know, just, uh, uh, just, just the warm feeling of people doing things for other people. You know, so it will be ran the whole spectrum, you know, the tragedy of losing wives, the despicability of, you know, people building stores, but also the hope and inspiration of people being stepped up to, you know, to save people's lives. That's literally what it amounted to. They saved people's lives. And so this, the, the blizzard is the, the weather, you know, is a part of, you know, who's Buffalo, you know, growing up paying dues. But you definitely got to be prepared for winter. Can't have your, you know, your, your rear end hanging out there in the winter in Buffalo. Right. So, you know, Buffalo's got those kind of, uh, you know, guardrails that making, you know, behave in a certain fashion. And that is what I think, uh, as I probably uh, said before, and I guess reiterating this, you know, what makes Buffalo uh, a special place to grow up in because, you know, you pay your dues here and if you, you know, want to, take those lessons to another place, they will be definitely, you know, very applicable. You will do all right. And so you, you say that, um, if I'm not mistaken, you, uh, your children, you have one uh, living in Atlanta, another one living in Brooklyn. So they've, uh, they've taken their, their Buffalo lessons at Hazel Road, so to say. And we talked on this program before, asking people to kind of compare and contrast when it comes to race in other places compared to Buffalo. Do you see, in the time that you spend in these places, do you sense that? Do you feel that it's a different experience for a person of color living in Atlanta or maybe even in Brooklyn? Well, I'd say that Atlanta, you know, impresses at least as a very uh, progressive place for, you know, uh, for, for African-Americans, for black people in terms of uh, professional, entrepreneurial, commercial, uh, residential opportunities that are available maybe in that metropolis. Uh, you know, New York, Brooklyn, you know, kind of the same thing. Uh, Buffalo just is not, is, is not as far down the road in that kind of both economic, uh, commercial, uh, but also racial advancement. Uh, you know, my, my experience in Buffalo has probably been, uh, I don't want to say atypical, but, you know, I mean, I, I, I'm not for, what am I trying to say? I'm struggling for a description here, but, you know, I was a practicing attorney, you know, my, my life was uh, pretty much uh, involved in middle-class lifestyle. I don't want to say that's made me immune to, you know, the racial, but is that different than that there's more maybe of a, a larger black middle-class in these other Look, yeah, I don't think that's one aspect of it. Yeah. You know, the, the, those places, just because they're more economically uh, potent at this time, I spoke up, uh, that, yeah, there, there's a larger uh, middle class, you know, for all, for all, uh, you know, skin shapes, 
But, you know, I think in Buffalo, uh, we're still, you know, we're still working, you know, on that, on that. And we're not as far as long as a lot of other places. Here in Buffalo, you know, uh, my, my vision is probably skewed somewhat by the fact that I live in a neighborhood that I consider relatively safe. Uh, by the fact that, uh, you know, I've had a, you know, a, a, a middle class, uh, you know, economic experience. I'm retired. But, you know, I don't have any real arisen retirement other than, you know, the fixed income worry that every retiree has. But, uh, you know, I, I, I feel that that's been a blessing for me. That is not necessarily, I don't want to say it's atypical, but that's not necessarily the experience world that everyone, you know, in the black community. And, uh, you know, for a lot of people in the black community, you know, times are hard. It's a struggle. That's a real struggle. We like to ask, what does Buffalo need? What does Buffalo need? What can, what do you say when you think looking forward for the city, which you obviously love, what does it need? They need to build to win the Super Bowl. That's one bit, bit, bit. But, uh, on that we agree, but then yeah, go to the priority too then. Uh, I would like to see more enlightened leadership, you know, not so much just city government, but, you know, metropolitan government. You know, I'd, I'd, I'd like to see the city have a closer working relationship uh, within the, uh, the village communities. You know, I'm talking the ethnic villages that, and surrounding uh, town and sub- suburban ethnic villages that have always uh, sort of uh, characterized Buffalo. Uh, but I'd also like to see it in the way we look at regional government, not just municipal government. I didn't like, you know, uh, polling cars and the shot he took at uh, Mayor Brown's for the ineffectual, you know, cleanup act with the storm. Well, you know, I thought that was, you know, and this is a 500-year storm, you know, which came after the last 200 years to And I thought it was just kind of a cheap shot to, you know, say that uh, the city didn't respond adequately. There was no adequate response to that situation because Mother Nature took over. And I would like to see less of that kind of uh, uh, intergovernmental sniping and, and, and discord. Uh, a cooperation, you know, whether it's Republican and Democrat or be Democrat and Democrat. I just like to see Buffalo have a more, uh, you know, regional approach to uh, governance as opposed to, you know, the city's over here, the county is over there, the town governments are over over in another place, but never working uh, necessarily as I see it if it benefit of the region. I think I got the answer to this before I ask it, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Do you have hope for Buffalo? I do. I do. One of my hopes, ironically, is, uh, is climate change. I mean, I don't know that I will necessarily see the full manifestation of climate change and what it will, the impact it's going to have on our region. But I think it's going to be good. And I mean, is Buffalo, <laughs> it'll be kind of in the corridor that we occupy with Toronto, with uh, other major U.S. cities. I think that global warming was going to, uh, affect us in a way that th- this region will become more hospitable for, for, for places looking to maybe relocate, but also to take advantage of the uh, weather 
that, for the most part, you know, knock on wood, right. doesn't involve, you know, having the 500-year storms every six weeks. Um, so I, I, I am optimistic for that reason. I'm also optimistic because I am, well, with about two lines. You know, Buffalo is going to, uh, you know, I think begin to rise. I think a lot of the... Uh, advancement, you know, with within the uh, residential and working class and working community of Buffalo is going to uh, evolve a lot of uh, newcomers, uh, immigrants, uh, you know, people from other places and look at Buffalo for its economic value, uh, people who come to Buffalo because, uh, you know, sadly, there are not enough, uh, you know, 21st century qualified people to fill the jobs that need filling here. So we're getting a lot of out-of-towners who have a different lens for looking at Buffalo. I would hope, and that's the other side of it, that, uh, you know, the, the current population will have an avenue to uh, be part of that growth. And I'm not so sure that uh, the opportunities and institutions are there to propel that segment you know, that underclass, if you will, to uh, share in uh, what I think are going to be the uh, teacher growth opportunities. Greg Brown, what a pleasure. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thank you for having Greg Brown is a columnist currently with The Challenger. He's also a former assistant U.S. attorney, and he sat down with us recently at the Broadway market to talk on Buffalo What's Next. This is Buffalo What's Next on WBFO. Buffalo Toronto Public Media's unique and valued programming on WNED-PBS, WNED Classical, and WBFO make us a perfect partner for any company interested in making a real difference in our community. Your support has the power to associate your business with one of the most trusted brands in North America. Call me, Sylvia Bennett, to find out how you can make a difference. 716 845 7005. Not sure what you want to watch tonight? We've got you covered. Visit WNED.org slash TV schedule to see what's on WNED PBS, WNED Create, and WNED PBS Kids. Click the primetime button to see what's on tonight. You can also search for your favorite programs in the search bar or look for programs by date and time. Visit WNED.org slash TV schedule and start making your viewing plans now. This is Buffalo What's Next, where we have conversations with the community about moving forward. To have your voice heard, press the Talk to Us button on the WBFO app, and we'll work to get your questions and comments on the air. Join us on Twitter at WBFO or email us at news at WBFO.org. Together, we'll have the conversations that are needed. This is WBFO, your NPR station. And up next, Disabilities Desk reporter Emily Watkins takes a look at how that particular community, people with disabilities, don't always get the resources they need. It's a common theme here on Buffalo What's Next. You know, it's almost like the um, the working, working class in poverty. Like, you're, you're full-time, but you're still... Um, below, uh, you, you know, the standard of living wage in this country. Stay with us. This is Disabilities Desk reporter Emily Watkins. I'm joined by Garrett Bush, host of the Ultimate Cleveland Sports Show, 
and the Barbershop on Sports Radio 92.3, The Fan in Cleveland, Ohio. He's here to discuss DeMar Hamlin's cardiac arrest and what often happens to players after they are injured on the field, including the issues they face with disability benefits and their contracts. Garrett, thanks so much for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure of mine, and I'm glad to be here. I'd like to start by hearing a little bit about uh, you and your work in Cleveland. Well, um, this this story has a, a couple of twists, but um, I'll start by, by saying I do have a background in Social Security disability. Um, I worked at a company called um, Centauri Health Solutions, and what they did is they submitted applications on behalf of insurance plans uh, to help some of those members transfer over to Social Security disability. In that process, um, we had we would do the diagnosis process where you, we would gather your information. We would talk to a clinical nurse, uh, disability specialist, and we would file applications on behalf of those associates because Social Security is a very uh, tough role. Um, it is very difficult to get, and you definitely need a lawyer in order to submit the final case. So um, our firm did that, and um, I did that for eight years here in Cleveland, Ohio. Um, and then during that track, I had always been doing um, sports talk radio. I started working at uh, 92.3 The Fan as a producer, eventually worked my way up to doing a show, and then uh, eventually got to be doing my own show uh, called The Barbershop on 92.3 The Fan. Recently, um, I moved forward with my uh, media career full-time, uh, and I started joining as a co-host of the Ultimate Cleveland Sports Show, um, where I guess this clip that um, we were talking about today kind of went viral in terms of um, DeMar uh, Hamlin and then, you know, actually disability and benefits and CTE and a lot of these other things that come along with it. So that, that's been my long road to where we are today. Thank you. You know, before we get into uh, too much about DeMar Hamlin and... Um you know, NFL player benefits specifically, let's talk about SSDI because I really think that it's something that's wildly misunderstood. And, um, you know, there is that difficulty of it's not your doctor deciding if you get SSDI. It really is this review board of doctors who have never met you until now. Right. Um, so social security disability is a very hard thing to get. Um, you do have to submit an application um, before a review board, and they will decide and make a determination based on whether or not that you feel you meet the initial requirements or the, the requirements for Social Security. Um, so one of the things that is very difficult for people and patients to deal with is you have to have a, amass a large amount of files, medical records. So you you have to have uh, you know a lot of ongoing concerns, ongoing sicknesses ongoing uh, medications and you have to be very stringent in the way you document things because that is the way the government utilizes and, and you know disqualifies people based on whether their documentation is correct plus if you do have the documentation correct there are uh, uh, some things that you do need to have um, in order to be able to be eligible there are income requirements right so some people feel like if you're able you're disabled um, and you are getting disability check um, that you can't work. That's not that's not true. You can you can still work and be get a disability, um, and be deemed disabled, and it basically comes to a, a monthly amount, a cap. So you can't go over a, a certain amount of money. Um, I'm not sure what that number is correct right now. I've been out of the industry for a while, but there is a there is an income cap on it and requirements that go on that as well. 
So uh, disability is, is something um, that, you know, faces and affects everyone, not just uh, football players. And when you look at Social Security disability, um, it is a fixed income uh, if you do get it. Um, you do have to do sometimes have redeterminations based on um, you could be short term disabled. You could be long term disabled. So there's a lot of different rules and regulations that go into it. Um, and I think what people need to get the most out of disability is. Yes, even if you are deemed disabled, it's not a free ride. It's not something where, hey, I get this check and it's just forever. I'm good and secure. Uh, people that are on Social Security disability have a lot of different things that they need to pay for. Um, one of the things that is really big is if you qualify for disability, that means you've had extensive medical history. So cost of care is huge, um, especially as you get older um, through the end stages of your life. Medications are huge, right? Um, what if you have to have um, some specific therapies? Uh, maybe that's, you know, it, it's countless of things that you need based on your illness that they put you in a position you are now. And, you know, the income is not that great. It's, it's there to serve as a bare means of making ends meet. But by no stretch of the imagination, are, are you on easy street and taking an easy route out by, by having social security disability? Definitely. I mean, I know that from a personal perspective, because I grew up with a parent on SSDI. And, you know, even as a disabled, working disabled person, I've had friends come to me and say, well, can't, can't you just go get money from the government? Like, can't you just go get benefits as if there's like a magical disability benefits fairy, just like handing out checks from the no. government. It, it's such a difficult process. Um, I know for my dad, it took about a year and he was very lucky to have it take that short of an amount of time. I mean, how, how long is this process typically? Cause people don't just like, you don't just you know, get a disability and then all of a sudden get a check. This is a hard process and it takes a while. And then, like you said, a lot of people are living in poverty on this SSDI wage. Yes. Yeah. Um, it, it's, you know, it, it's almost like the, um, the working, working class in poverty, like you, you're full time, but you're still, um, below, uh, you, you know, the standard of living wage in, in this country. So it, the first time you submitted an application for social security disability, um, the time is a thing. It can take up to six months for you to get a determination. It can be six. And that's if everything goes well. Um, I believe the denial rate is somewhere between 50 and 60% on initial applications for lots of people. So the first application, just imagine you, you, you combine all of this stuff, right? And, and you already have a, a level of poor uh, health. So you have to go to the doctor. You got to request all those documentations, right? All those documents. Plus, that could cost you money. So you have to gather all these things. Maybe you're on public transit. You got to get the documents. You got to go see the doctors. You gather all of them. It takes six months. You turn it in, and then and then it. Guess what? They tell you, well, we didn't get enough information, or the determination didn't come through the way we wanted to. We don't think that you meet the requirements for Social Security. You can file once again, uh, you know, an appeal, but that appeals process takes another three months. So it could take theoretically on a moderate scale, two years to just get basic levels of social security. Now they will go back and backdate it from the date that, you know, uh, you were ill. So if I was denied once and then I submitted an appeal, um, they will backdate that to the date that you, you submitted the original case. So that is, but the whole time you're, you're submitting these, 
without income because you can't work if you're not working. Um, and how are you, you maintaining yourself? So, uh, and then you have to come up with resource requirements. So you have to have affidavits of people who are helping you because they'll say, okay, well, if you're not working currently, how actually are you supporting yourself? So you'd have to get affidavits from family, friends, maybe uh, different public agents, agencies for people that are under a social, um, sort of a socioeconomic uh, level. So it's very hard. It could take a long time. It's very grueling. Um, and it's very grueling through the process without very much uh, income or resources or money that come out of it. So that that's another difficult part about Social Security. And, and one more question about SSDI that comes to mind, and we touched on this, is, you know, a phrase I've heard from people living on SSDI or living on different disability benefits is they call it a system of forced poverty, right? Because you can't make more than a certain amount. You can't have more than a certain amount in your bank account. I mean, that has to be a huge life change for a lot of people, even if they're not an NFL player, to go from whatever they were making at a working wage down to what you make at an SSDI wage, so to speak. Very tough. You, you, they call it spending down those resources. Um, so there are resource um, limits. So say, for instance, you um, you don't work, um, you don't have any income coming in, but you do have things like inheritances, right? Or you do have things like, hey, I got a house, right? Or, hey, I got uh, two properties, or I got $10,000 in the bank. Well, they count those as resources. So you have to then spend down those resources to a point where you fall under the level in which you can qualify economically or financially uh, in order to get Social Security. So it, it's almost um, a double negative, almost. It's like, yeah, I do have a little bit of a cushion here, but you want me to spend all my savings just to qualify for seven, eight hundred dollars a month. That doesn't make sense. I'd rather just basically take the seven, eight hundred dollars a month and live off my savings until I don't have anything. But here's the thing: while you're doing that, you don't have any insurance. You could be you could be uh, accumulating lots of medical bills, and so either you're, you're between a rock or a hard place, right? You can go bankrupt easy uh, if you have a lot of medical bills and being sick. So some people just bite the bullet and say, okay, well, I'll take the money for the 10000 or whatever is in the bank. I'll use those resources for things like medications or, or treatments or whatever the case may be so that they can still apply for Social Security disability and still get the health benefits as well. But it's a conundrum, it's a catch-22 um, when it comes to your resources because they do take that into consideration whether or not you're eligible for Social Security disability. You know, I, I think a lot of people who watched the recent episode of the Ultimate Cleveland Sports Show, you know, even without knowing your background, just saw, you know, your passion and your frustration for this topic. And I'd like to ask you, you know, how you're doing and what's been on your mind since DeMar was injured? Oh, well, well thank you for, first of all, asking. I, I do believe we need to ask about, you know, each other's mental health and check up on each other. Um, I'm doing good. That frustration in that moment wasn't really for me. You know, some people misconstrued it and said, well, maybe he's a little upset because, you know, I did play football in college and I did sustain a lot of injuries that I deal with today. But honestly, um, it had nothing really to do with me. And my my mind was all about uh, DeMar and his family at the time because, you know, right before that happened, um, one of our contributors on our show, Aditi Kikambala, she is a um, she's worked for the NFL Network, sideline journalist for the uh, NFL. 
and she talked about him as a person. Um, he, she had the opportunity to know him back when he was in college, University of Pittsburgh. And she talked about how um, he was such a good kid coming up in a, in a really tough neighborhood. And his mother did all that she could in order to make sure that he didn't fall into the streets. Um, he, he talked about half of his friends dying before the age of 15. Um, his father was incarcerated for three years as he was growing up. And he, his, her mother was, or his mother was so um, conscious of this that she worked two jobs, one babysitting and the other one at cleaning offices at night. And um, just to put him through private school so that he, she can make sure that he made it um, and, and got to college. And he did, um, you know, he was a great player, one of the best players in the, in the country, could have went anywhere. Um, but he chose to stay at local, went to University of Pittsburgh because he had a younger brother uh, who was, a, a, his mother and father reunited, he got another, uh, he had, had a, a baby uh, brother and he wanted to make sure that he was a role model and that he could be around his brother all the time. So he would stay close to home. And so that, that story really touched me because I know how hard it is for you to, you know, stay out of the streets. And the sacrifice that his mom made, you know, living as a single parent um, and cleaning offices and cleaning bathrooms and things like that, just for a son to get an education and stay out of, out of the mix and the streets. For her to see her son go to the league, be at the pinnacle of success, so to speak, and then to go to a game and in a freak episode, like a, a random tackle that I've seen that a lot of people have seen. It didn't look crazy. It didn't look ridiculous. It wasn't hard. For that to happen and to see your son fall on the field and, and have to be resuscitated, you just have to think about what, what, what she was going through at that time. Like, I did everything I could. I did everything I could to make sure my son was on the right, right track and he got where he was. And now I got to deal with the prospects of him potentially dying on the football field in front of millions of people. Like, and, and all he wants to do is just, you know, live a good life. So for me, that frustration came for me um, because God forbid he gets off the football field and he never recovers mentally or physically, or he's not able to work. He's not able to earn a living. You know, I'm not able to take care of his children to a certain extent, you know, Who's going to take care of him? You, you, home health care is is outrageous. Um, 24-hour care is outrageous. I, I, I challenge people to go look at, um, you know, a person like Rodney Rogers. Uh, he's a basketball player for the Denver Nuggets. Uh, he was in a four-wheel accident, and he was paralyzed from the chest down. And his, um, he was just married. I believe it was either shortly before or shortly after um, the accident happened. And to see his wife have to take care of him and to feed him and to clothe him and to bathe him, you know, and he he had a pension and he had millions and he's a basketball player and basketball contracts are guaranteed. You sign tomorrow, you keep all your money, right? Football is not the same. Either you're going to be working or, or you make the team and you're, you're playing to get a game check every game or you don't get money. So I'm thinking like if his mother being like, hey, I, I had to wipe and clean toilets for him to get here and now I have to do that for the rest of his life. And he's 24. I mean, like, that's for me, I, I just, 
you know, that that that's where I was at that moment. A lot of people see that passion and they may think it came from other places, but it was just understanding the plight of a young man not not being even able to live to to, you know, at the height of what he was gonna do. He just he's just a kid. I'm 41, he's 24. You got a lot in front of him. And for his mother to have to like actually contemplate that, you know, just put me in a bad place. Uh, and and, and I, that's where I spoke from. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. And I mean, the thing that strikes me about it too is like there are so many young men who go into these sports because the NFL offers that uh, kind of an American dream, you know, this golden paved street to a better life. What is the NFL offering versus what people are actually getting? Well, I, I think it, it's such a catch twenty two. Like, um, there's always shades of gray in in life, and football, like any other thing, is shades of gray. You know, I I, I live a, I guess a complicated life with football, because at one point the business of football I I don't like at all, the sport of football, I I I owe a lot to that. Um, I I cover teams today and cover sports for a living. Um, because I do cover sports. I'm here talking to you. I'm, I'm here um, and I meet different people. Um, sports has taught me as a young man, it kept me out of, uh, you know, the streets. It gave me something to work towards. It taught me hard work and dedication and, and working towards a, a goal, a common goal with a team, um, perseverance. It taught me so many great things and it, it got me a scholarship to play football in college. Um, so, Football on one hand has given me a bunch of things, right? And if, if I had to do it all over again, I would probably do it all over again, uh, which is the tough part about it because it's the psychological things that go along with it. Um, how do you sign up for something that you know is bad for you, but at the same time, good for you, right? You, you know what the long-term effects of it is on your body, your head, your, your spine, your knees. You know what that is. But the reality of it is you also know what positives it can give. At the highest level, football does give you a, a chance to not only make your life special, but change your, your family's lives for generations. You, know, you look at, uh, you know, uh, DeMar, uh, you, can't, you can't tell him, you can tell him to turn down football. Like he's looking at it like this. And a lot of athletes feel like what they want to do is they want to pay it back to their, to, their, to their moms, their families, right? They got people looking at them like, yeah, I know my mom sacrificed. There was times where she didn't eat and I knew she was hungry and working two jobs so we could eat. So you're going to try to do everything in your power to be able to give your mom what you didn't have. You, you want to be able to, and for a lot of people, it's hard to understand because this is the first generation of people who've ever seen anything, um, money, success, opportunities. So usually, generally speaking, when you come from a really solid family, you can look at them and say, oh, well, my mom went to college, so I went. My dad went to college, so there you go. My mom and dad were married. Push come to shove, but even if I didn't, you know, even if I didn't get a scholarship, I, I wouldn't freak out. Like, oh, my God, my life is over because my parents were like, you know, they were there. They'll, they'll, they'll support me in any which way they can. And I've gotten an advantage that a lot of African-Americans haven't. Um, and that's why I'm really, really passionate about um, – you know, advancement and, and talking and speaking out because in one hand, the league does give you an opportunity for that. And we only see the top 10%, the quarterbacks, the Tom Brady's, Aaron Rodgers, the Peyton Manning's, you know, Odell Beckham's, all those guys. First, granted, they get endorsements, all of that. But the majority, that's just the tip of the iceberg. The majority of what 
with the league is lives below the water. And that is the huge sum and a mass of people who don't reach their second contract, right? I, I kind of paint the, the picture of this. If you take a, a guy um, and he's six years old, I didn't start playing to football till I was 14. Play basketball, play baseball, didn't play at 14. Take a person like my brother. My brother started at six. So you play from the age of, in, in Pop Warner, you play from the age of six to 12. That's six years right there on your body. You get to you get to middle school. You play another year. That's nine years. You go to high school. That you you play in another four year. That's that you're already at at, at what, what nine four. That's th that's thirteen years you play. You go to college. You could get redshirted if you spend five years in college. It's five another. So that's eighteen years. So your first contract in the in in the league. You've already put 18 years of wear and tear on your body before you even got a check. So now you go through college and say, for instance, you're great and you leave after three years. Well, that's good. So just think if you get out of college when you're 22, your rookie deal, which is not the big contract, it's the proven contract, you're already at 27 years of age by the time you can even get generational type money. So what are the chances of you not being hurt? What are the chances of you panning out? What are the chances of you doing all those things and you're 27 years old? And by that time, they're telling you, hey, um, you're not as fast as you used to be. Hey, the last year of your contract, you're owed $11 million. But what we would like to do is can we um, ask you to give five or six of that back because the team isn't so good and we're up against the cap. They're going to ask you to give that money back. And if you say, no, I want to keep, they'll straight up cut you. So, I mean, are you, is it really a contract? Is it really? No, it's really, hey, we give you a signing bonus. That's the only thing you're guaranteed. And so sometimes when players, you know, hold out for less, for more money, the fans will say, why are you holding out? You're being a selfish millionaire. But they don't understand that their contract isn't guaranteed past this year. So if they don't hold out before the age of 27, they're never going to get that second contract. So those are the different things that I, I try to, you know, make people um, cognizant of. The league is good to some people. The league is great in general when it comes to compensation. These people will make more probably than you will make in your whole life. But always remember, that's the tip of the iceberg. You got to look below the iceberg and you'll see that, yes, um, you, there's a very quick way that you can start struggling, um, you know, to take care of yourself, especially when you, you're not that high of a draft pick. Thank you for that perspective, because we see these these great athletes. We see the sport that we love, but we don't always see these conversations about the health and the quality of life issues that impact players. You know, there's all these issues that happen after we just see them in this moment where they're doing really well. But we don't always think about what happens after. Yeah. Um, that's a sad part of our, our society. I mean, you know, I'm not, I, I'm no different from anybody else. I always tell people, I love the game of football. I love watching it. I play fantasy, you know what I'm saying? And, you know, when the Browns lose, it just kills my heart. <laughs> um, just like, you know, like you guys in Buffalo are, are rabbit fans, right? You live and die with your team. But there is a sense of people not understanding or not really qu quite you know, relating to people. And I think sometimes because they think that the money gets in the way. 
um, when you you think about it like this, we had a, a job fair one time. I think I was in the sixth grade or fifth or sixth grade, and I went up to my teacher, and they were like, hey, what do you want to do? We looked at this little book, and then we went around and talked to the people. And some people said, I wanted to be an astronaut. Some people said, I'm going to be a firefighter and all this. So I was looking around, and I just asked a question like, hey, um, hey, uh, Miss uh, Johnson, how much money do you make? And she was like, you're never supposed to ask a professional how much you make. And I'm like, I, I would, how do I know what I want to do if I don't know how much it gets paid? Like, how much am I getting paid to do this job? That's, and so you get older and you realize that, you know, people get really guarded about how much they make because it changes the perception of the way people think about you. But think about it when you turn as an athlete. There is no other profession in the world where the moment you sign your first contract, the entire world knows it. The entire universe knows how much you make, how many years it is, when you signed it. And so now you're walking around with the scarlet letter on and people look at you like, oh, you're an athlete. You, you, you know, you get everything given to you. Uh, hey, now you're making all this money. But they don't understand and don't take time to understand it. Like that whole contract is not guaranteed and everything that you got to do to get it. So when a player does something or gets injured or gets hurt, we lose our humanity a little bit because we, we, we in our mind rationalize, well, what did you think was going to happen? You're going to get hurt or you, you make $2 million. It is what it is when it comes with that. And instead of thinking about, hey, this person is just doing a profession and that person is, is compensated based on the amount of revenue that they bring in. We would never, and I'm not comparing this to anything, like, so you got to watch yourself down. I, we would never say if somebody, you know, got hurt in, in a war, we would say, well, we, you know what you signed up for. You would be a little more sensitive to that. You would, you would say, thank you for your service because it is, it is valiant. It is, it is honorable to volunteer to go do something that's dangerous. But I think sometimes as humans, we get really callous when, when, when money is involved because we tend to, say, okay, well, money equates all happiness and you got paid $5 million, so who cares if you're vain for the rest of your life? I just think that's kind of where, where we're at in, in human nature when it, when it comes to athletes a little bit. And that will do it for today's episode of the program. This is Buffalo What's Next. Thanks to Emily's guest, Garrett Bush, and earlier in the program, Jay Moran speaking with Greg Brown. If you missed anything and you'd like to hear it again, a reminder that this program is a podcast. You can get it wherever you get your podcasts. And each episode is also online on demand at WBFO.org. This is WBFO and WBFO HD1 Buffalo, WOLN Olean, and WUBJ Jamestown. I'm Dave Debo. Thanks for listening.